Good morning. My name is Stuart Davidson. I'm the pastor here at Eastern Shore Baptist Church. Thank you for tuning in to today's podcast. You can learn more about our church by visiting our website, www.myesbc.net. Of course, if you would like to visit us on a Sunday morning, you'll see that we have life group classes or Sunday school classes that start at 9 a.m. And our service starts every Sunday at 1010 a.m. Come by and see us. God bless you. And I hope that you are motivated to look more like Jesus through today's podcast. If you'll open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 11, we will look at Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. You know, I've grown up in church. I've I've been to, I don't know, probably 40 Palm Sunday services over my life. And of course, I I don't know that I've really ever missed an Easter service. Uh, My mom and dad were always really faithful to getting me to to make sure I was there for Easter. Uh, But it's interesting to me because I think so many times we, um, it's tempting to just blow through Palm Sunday. And, and not consider its relevance and not to consider its significance and not take a moment for understanding how it impacts us on a very personal way. Palm Sunday was a personal experience for a great number of people when Jesus came through Jerusalem on the first day of his Passion Week. It was a personal experience. There were people who identified with Jesus in a very personal way. They connected with Jesus. And so this morning, what I want us to do is to slow down just a little bit, because I know that once this day comes and goes, that we're going to sort of fast forward ourselves all the way to Easter Sunday. And I know Easter is the day. It is the deal. Uh, Just a moment ago, I was praying with our staff before our service started, and and one of the things I told them is how excited I was about Easter Sunday. But friend, we ought to be excited about every Sunday. Every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. But there is something special, something unusual about next Sunday. It's something that the entire world sort of gravitates around. It's something the entire world begins to fellowship and talk about. It's something that the entire world, whether you're a believer or non-believer, people are discussing Easter Sunday. But I do want to take a moment and have us slow down, if you will, long enough to, to sort of take in what Palm Sunday is really all about. If you want to, you can fill in this first blank. For the believer, it's important to pause on Palm Sunday. For the believer, it's important to pause on Palm Sunday. The 21st chapter of the book of Matthew begins with Jesus, of course, he is entering Jerusalem. Looking back a couple of chapters, you'll see that Jesus had not only taken part of the transfiguration, which we actually covered in the book of Luke, but he had also been doing a great deal of teaching, and one gets the sense when reading that Jesus knew clearly that his time, uh, at least on planet Earth, was coming to an end. We know that Jesus knew and understood what was going to be taking place over the next several days of his life. So in this context, we see that Jesus goes to Jerusalem. The first picture we see here is this triumphal entry uh, where Jesus is adored by this huge crowd. They hail him as the Messiah. This seems, by the way, to be, um, uh, this seems to be a, a high moment in the last few days of Jesus' life. Now, we all know the rest of the story. We know that this high moment was very short-lived. 
if even contrived. The people in Jesus' day believed that he was going to come and, and set them free from Roman captivity. They believed that he was going to overthrow Pilate, overthrow Caesar, and that he was going to establish a state in Israel. Now, we know that that state didn't come until 1948, but, but his people believed that's what was going to happen, that Jesus was going to be a political leader, a ruler, a king of earthly nature. And, of course, we know that Jesus came not to set up a, a, a temporary state here on planet Earth, but that he came to set up a, a spiritual state that is found within our hearts. So this morning, I'll be reading from Matthew 21, verses 1 through 11 from the English Standard Version. You can read along with me if you'd like. It says this, Matthew's account, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent, his, sent it two disciples, two saying to them, Going to the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and her colt with her. Untie that donkey and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. Verse 4. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Verse 6. Then the disciples went. And did as Jesus directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put their cloaks on them. And they sat, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd had spread their cloaks on the road. And others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Of course, we know what Hosanna means. It means, Lord, save us. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. So four points this morning, very briefly, if you want to, you can fill in some of these blanks with me. Jesus arrives in Jerusalem powerfully. He arrives in Jerusalem powerfully. Palm Sunday, by the way, is often regarded as a powerful moment in Jesus' life and in Jesus' ministry, with the exception of the resurrection itself and Jesus' authority over death. Palm Sunday illustrates a very true expression of who Jesus uh, it really is and the power that he displays. Jesus, by the way, at this point is now fully realized deity in human flesh. He understands his purpose, knows where he has come from, has embraced his role in salvation, of how he is going to eventually defeat Satan, and how he is going to overshadow hell itself, taking the keys of death. Jesus is God. God, not God with a little g, but God with a big g. God. One way that Jesus demonstrates his power and authority. It occurs in Matthew 21, verses 1 through 3. He's drawing near to a place called Bethphage. Bethphage, by the way, means house of unripe figs. That's what it means. It was a village on the southeast, southeast slope of the Mount of Olives, and it was just just east of Jerusalem, the mountain that Jesus sits on is several hundred feet above the city. So you can imagine Jesus sitting there in Bethphage and he's sitting there on the mountain and he can see all of Jerusalem spread out before him. He can hear the bustling of the people on the city streets and he can see everything laid out before him. 
And Jesus draws on his omniscient power and commands the disciples to go into the city where they will discover a very specific donkey. Not just any donkey, a very specific donkey. He tells them to untie the donkey and then he reveals what their response should be to a conversation that is not even had yet with a man that they've not even met yet, a man who actually owns the donkey and the colt. The disciples, by the way, who had once previously questioned everything about Jesus, wanting to know, wanting specifics as to what he's telling them to do. All of a sudden, yet in this piece of Scripture, the disciples are completely obedient. They do not question Jesus. The donkey goes as it is commanded to go. The owner of the donkey does as he is expected to do. Not only does Jesus see the future, he sees the hearts of the people that his disciples had not even met yet. He saw the hearts of the disciples, sees the heart of the animal, sees the heart of the owner. Jesus is omniscient. He sees everything. Jesus demonstrates one more very powerful act in this story. And the powerful act that Jesus demonstrates is suppression. Suppression. Jesus is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Alpha and the Omega, yet Jesus suppresses his power and authority and rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. This might be one of the most astounding acts of power in the entire Bible. An all-powerful, omniscient being humbling himself to ride side saddle on on the back of a donkey for human eyes to see is utterly amazing. Perhaps the most powerful scene in this scripture is this all-powerful God choosing humility and weakness. Today reflects on Christ's first coming into the city of Jerusalem. However, his second coming will be vastly different. The second coming of Christ will be with power and glory. Perhaps the best way to understand that statement is to compare the circumstances surrounding his first entry to his second coming. The first time Jesus came unnoticed into the world, and the second time, if you remember, every eye will see him and every eye will know him. In his first coming, Jesus humbled himself, being born in a stable in Bethlehem, riding on the back of a donkey, and yet when he comes back, he will come back as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. In his first coming, he endured the mockery of men, and who despised him for his goodness. Although he was the son of God, he allowed them to put him to death, that thereby he might provide salvation for the entire world. And yet when he comes again, all mockery will cease, for he will rule the nations with with a rod of iron. He came the first time as the lamb of God. He comes the second time as the what? Do you know? The lion of God. 2,000 years ago, the religious leaders shouted in scorn. He saved others, but he can't save himself. The day is coming when the whole world will see that Jesus is who he really is. When that happens, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God and to the Lord and to the glory of his Father. Around the first coming, you could probably write the word humility in all caps. Around his second coming, we could probably write the word glory in all caps. Nothing could be more natural than a triumphant return for a victorious Lord. Though he was once despised and rejected of men, he will one day return in power and great glory, heralded by by angels and accompanied by all of the saints. It is going to be an awesome day when Jesus comes 
very different than when he first rode in to Jerusalem. Revelation chapter 1, verse 7, the apostle John writes these words, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. Friends, are you looking forward to that day? Are you looking forward to the day when Jesus comes back, makes all things right, makes everything new, and shows the world who he really is? I'm looking forward to that day. Jesus arrives in Jerusalem powerfully, but he also arrives in another way, prophetically. He arrives prophetically. You see in verse 4 and 5 that a particular scripture by a particular prophet is being mentioned. 500 years before Christ was born, the Old Testament prophet Zechariah said these words. In Zechariah 9, verse 9, if you want to flip there, it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation. He is humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus did exactly what Zechariah said he would do 500 years before it actually was supposed to happen. He came as a king, humble and on a donkey, yet there is far more to this passage than just the fact that Zechariah gives us the transportation on which Jesus comes into the city on. Again, go back to Zechariah and look at the context. Verses 8 through 11, it says this, Then I will encamp at my house as a guard. So that none shall march to and fro, no oppressor shall again march over them. For now I will see with my own eyes, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Verse 10, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off. And he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Can you imagine why, why the Israelites, while those that were in Jerusalem would have been a little perplexed or confused about Jesus' coming? Again, they thought he was coming to set them free, uh, to shatter the bow, to set their prisoners free, to establish a kingdom. And yet Jesus was doing so many more great things. It's said that Jesus fulfilled some 300 prophecies in his time. 300 prophecies. A feat that can only be explained by Jesus' divine nature and his omniscient power. Perhaps the greatest of the, of the prophecies in the Old Testament concerning Jesus' entry into Jerusalem specifically comes from Daniel chapter 9. To summarize, in Daniel chapter 9, we're told that, that it would be 483 years. 483 years of Jewish days, uh, back in those days, were 360 days. From the command to rebuild Jerusalem to the coming of the Messiah, the Prince of Peace. So from the moment that Jesus came in Nehemiah 2, and Artaxerxes gave Nehemiah permission to go and rebuild Jerusalem. Biblically, we know exactly what this year was. It was the Jewish month of Nisan and, uh, of Artaxerxes, the 20th reigning year. And from that historic Babylonian records, we know that his command was actually on March 14th, 445 B.C. Now get this, 483 years later, 
to the exact day brings us to April 6th, AD 32, which is when most scholars believe that Jesus rode into Jerusalem, the day of the triumphal entry. From Artaxerxes' command to rebuild to the day the triumphal entry was exactly 100,073, or excuse me, 173,880 days. It was exactly to the date that Daniel chapter 9 said that it would happen. How could this happen? Was Jesus' triumphal entry just some freak happy accident? Was it some sheer happenstance that he met some 300 prophecies in his life? Friends, this was no accident. It was an appointment. This was not some random cosmic display of things sort of willy-nilly coming together. It was the sovereign hand of God and the power of his providential nature at work. And Jesus knew that the Old Testament, by the way, was pointing to him and his eventual sacrifice. He alluded to it many times. He discussed it openly. If you read Luke chapter 24, verses 25 through 27, on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection, Jesus meets Cleophas. And Cleophas was struggling with what had happened and what had taken place in Jerusalem during the death of Jesus Christ. And listen to what he said. This is Jesus' response. And he said to them, O foolish ones, And slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted it to them in all the scriptures concerning himself. Jesus went all the way back to the very beginning and said, Guys, everything in the Old Testament that is prophesied about this coming Savior has been realized in me. Everything. What an awesome experience. He arrives in Jerusalem powerfully. He arrives in Jerusalem prophetically, but he also arrives peacefully. Jesus' procession into Jerusalem was not the first one that the city had seen. Some three years earlier, there was another procession, a different procession. This procession was wild. It was wildly different than what Jesus' procession looked like. This procession was Roman in nature and illustrated the power and the might of the Roman Empire. At the center of this procession was a man who we believe lives in scriptural infamy today. And who is that man? Well, that man is Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate. Historians of the day, by the way, it is well written about the day that Pontius Pilate took over in Jerusalem. It said that Pilate entered Jerusalem surrounded by legions of Roman soldiers. During the time of the Passover, each soldier was clad in leather armor and polished to a high gloss. Each, on, on each centurion's head, they had helmets that gleamed in the bright sunlight. At their size, sheath was scabbards, were great huge swords of the hardest steel, And in their hands, each centurion carried a spear, or if it was an archer, a bow. In the rank and file of the military processions were musicians and drummers, and the drummers were banging out a cadence as Pontius Pilate rode into the city of Jerusalem. Pilate, by the way, when he rode in, he didn't ride it on a donkey. He rode in on a mighty war horse, a tall horse. He was the governor of Judea, Samaria, and all the surrounding areas. Pilate entered into Jerusalem as not a peaceful king, but as a conquering king. He was someone not to be trifled with, and his authority to squash rebellions by any means necessary had been granted to him directly by Caesar himself. 
Pontius Pilate had complete authority under his command to do whatever he wanted to do with the Jews. Now, he couldn't treat Roman citizens poorly, but he could do whatever he wanted to do with the Jews. What authority did Rome Rome give to Pontius Pilate? They gave him the killing kind. It's said that a few years before Jesus Christ entered Jerusalem, there was a rebellion against Rome. And Rome, through one of its governors, they squashed the rebellion. And it's said that they lined up those that they were able to convict of the rebellion outside the city walls, on the city roads. Some 2,000 crosses had been set in place. And these men and women and anybody that was involved with the rebellion, they were immediately crucified, 2,000 people, all on the same day, outside of the city of Jerusalem. These are brutal times, horrible times. And Pontius Pilate was the man that could get it done. Pilate's entry into Jerusalem meant to send a message to the Jews and to those who might be plotting against the empire of Rome. And the spectacle was meant to remind Jews what had happened the last time a rebellion had taken place, death. And it was meant to intimidate the citizens. It was meant to show a force to the Jewish Uh, people. And so we know how Pontius Pilate rode into the city, and yet Jesus's, uh, his entry into the city could not have been more different. Pilate leading Roman centurions asserts power and might and authority, and yet Jesus riding in on a donkey embodies the peacefulness and the tranquility that is the shalom of God to his people Friends, I want to remind you today that Jesus does not ride into anybody's city, anybody's village, or anybody's heart trying to conquer it. He rides into your heart. He rides into your life and into your community. He rides in with peacefulness, wanting to show you his love for you. In John chapter 14, verse 27 You hear the words of Christ, peace I leave with you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives. Let not your hearts be troubled, and neither let them be afraid. So Jesus arrives powerfully, prophetically, peacefully, but then he also arrives perplexingly, confused. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Jesus comes into Jerusalem in a very confounding and confusing way. We see another account, by the way, of Palm Sunday in John chapter 12, and it says that his disciples were confused by all of these things. So it wasn't just the people that were surrounding the triumphal entry that were confused, but it was also Jesus' disciples as well. The disciples thought that Jesus was coming to overthrow Rome, but he rode in peacefully on a donkey, not a war horse. The disciples were not the only ones that were confused. People in general had no idea what was really going on. One moment they're shouting, Hosanna, which means Lord save us. And in the moment they're verbally validating Jesus' kingship and his divine authority. Yet in the same, in just a few short days, the same exact crowd that were shouting Hosanna are going to be shouting, crucify him. They were there, but they weren't really there. They weren't in the moment. They might have even held a palm branch in their hand, but they were confused as to actually what they were doing with it. They shouted, they screamed, they praised, and they had absolutely no idea what was going on. I've said it before, 
and I'll say it again, not a whole lot has changed in 2,000 years. The world is essentially the same exact place, isn't it? People are still fickle, aren't they? People will abandon you in a moment if you fall short of their expectations or if you disappoint them. People still what they want, not understanding their deepest need. Many people run around chasing uh, relationships, jobs, material possessions, friendships, acceptance, and approval. They think that those things are going to make them happy, but they just feel more and more empty when they get them. Jesus came to not give you what you want. He came to give you what he knows you need. Isn't that great? Jesus didn't come to give Stuart what Stuart wanted. He came to give Stuart what Stuart didn't even know that he needed, which was salvation. People people still try to understand Jesus without really taking the time to know him, which is essentially what's happening here. People are satisfied with a sermon about Jesus, a catchy song about Jesus, a devotion about Jesus, or what a blog maintains about Jesus having never actually read a word in the Bible about Jesus. They come, they're there, but again, they really have no idea what's going on and how Jesus can impact their lives. Lastly, people are happy to attribute biblical characteristics to Jesus without having to call him what he really is, God. Jesus is a prophet. That's what the people say. Yes, Jesus is a teacher, true. Jesus is a healer, absolutely. All of those things are great, but none of them mean that I have to make Jesus the boss of my life. Isaiah was a phenomenal man. He was a phenomenal prophet. He was someone very connected to God, but Isaiah doesn't have to be the boss of my life. But Jesus says that he's more than all of those things. Jesus is God, the son of the living, almighty, and everlasting God, and his word rules over my feelings, my desires, my longings, and my dreams. If Jesus is God, my sacrifice is worth it to bring his name glory. The people miss God who was right in front of them. If you miss Jesus in these events, in the events of these days, you've missed the point all together. It's so easy to be in awe of other people or in awe of what God has done, but to miss Jesus himself and the works that he's done. Sometimes people are the means of God's working, but never forget the source of God's working, which is Jesus What I've discovered about the Lord is that he's not going to share a place with anyone else in my life. He's either going to be first or he's not going to be there at all. Jesus is not going to step off his throne so that I can sit there or so that anything can sit there or so that anyone else can sit there. Jesus is the Lord. Remember the next time Jesus comes. Remember the next time Jesus comes, it's going to be impossible to miss him. It's going to be impossible to miss who he is, why he's here, and what's going on. In Luke chapter 21, verse 27, it says this, Luke, he says, And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great authority. What a great day that will be. Will you bow your heads with me this morning as we pray? Lord, we come before you. We want to thank you for the blessing of being in your house this Palm Sunday. There is no place I would rather be than right here with all of my friends, with all of my family. 
Lord, thank you that we get to slow down just a moment so that we can consider the gravity of the triumphal entry. Lord Jesus, I pray that we will slow down long enough to understand that you know our hearts, that you know the future, that you're sovereign, that you're God. Lord, I pray that we will install you not as just some teacher or prophet or miracle worker, but that we will install you in the throne room of our hearts, that we will give you our lives, and that we will say, Hosanna, Lord, save us. Lord Jesus, we love you. Thank you for this time that we've been able to worship today, and we pray this in your name. Amen. This morning, friends, Tony's going to come and lead us in a time of invitation, and perhaps there's a decision that you would like to make. Maybe this morning you would like to cry out. Thanks again for tuning in to today's podcast, and we hope to see you again on Sunday morning. Of course, you can also watch our services live on YouTube. Simply search Eastern Shore Baptist Church on YouTube, and at 10.05, our broadcast starts. We hope to see you soon. God bless you. And again, visit our website, www.myesbc.net. God bless you, and we'll see you next week.